Well, as we come to God's word this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do thank you that you have sent your spirit to come and to teach us of Christ, to direct our gaze, to turn our eyes to our Savior. Father, we recognize that the world, the flesh, and the devil would want nothing more than for us to turn our eyes to ourselves, turn our eyes away from Christ. And so we battle even now, even during this, these coming minutes, to continue to put our eyes upon Jesus and for him to captivate our hearts. I pray that you would use your word and your spirit to do that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, indeed, we do turn our attention to the study of God's word as we focus on Jesus of Nazareth as revealed and described in the gospel according to Luke. For there has only been one man who walked upon this earth with the special title of divine son of God. And therefore, we must look to that man. We've seen in Luke chapter 3 how Luke the historian sets up this narrative about Jesus to show that Jesus was an unmatched Messiah. There was none that compared to Jesus. He was God's chosen servant. And particularly at Jesus' baptism, he was set apart as this unique servant. He's a unique man with a unique mission and a unique relationship with God. The Spirit, you'll remember, descended as a dove and landed upon Jesus. The Father spoke from heaven, identifying Jesus as his beloved Son. And this baptism took Jesus, being an ordinary man, carpenter of Galilee, to being a traveling teacher, rabbi of the kingdom of God. It launched him into his public ministry. But but before he begins preaching and teaching, he must be tested. And that's where we find him in Luke chapter 4. So I invite you to turn there, if you haven't already, in your personal copy of God's Word, to Luke chapter 4. This morning we will read verses 1 through 13. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Follow along as I read. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God... Command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. 
And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now we're going to look at this passage today and next week. This morning we will be looking simply at the first two verses of this passage. And in these first two verses, we're going to set up the stage. We're going to set the stage for this showdown between the Son of God and Satan. And as we look at this setup, we're going to see, number one, that Jesus is uniquely qualified to go through this ultimate testing. That he's uniquely qualified to go through this ultimate testing. And secondly, that Jesus is our perfect example of living the Spirit-filled life. Jesus is our perfect example of living the Spirit-filled life. So to set the stage, we're going to be looking at Jesus and the Spirit, Jesus and the devil, and Jesus and temptation. So first, let's look at Jesus and the Spirit in verse 1. Look at verse 1 again with me. It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. The Holy Spirit here is mentioned twice in verse 1. First, he fills Jesus. Secondly, he leads Jesus. Now, if you've been with us in our study of the, of the Gospel of Luke, you know that the Holy Spirit is not a new character. In fact, he's gotten quite a bit of showtime here in the first several chapters of the book of Luke. He, we read even in chapter 1, even before Jesus was born, right? John the Baptist was prophesied to be filled with the Holy Spirit in chapter 1, verse 15. The Spirit filled Elizabeth, John's mother, Chapter 1, verse 41. He filled Zechariah, John's father. Chapter 1, verse 67. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary, Jesus' mother. Chapter 1, verse 35. And he was upon Simeon, that old man in, in the temple, in a special way in chapter 2, verses 25 to 27. So the Holy Spirit has been mentioned several times and has been active, working in the saints here in these early chapters of Luke. Luke wants us to see that the Holy Spirit is part of what is moving this narrative along. These are not just events that are happening by accident, but the Holy Spirit is filling this person and filling this person and bringing about God's plan. And so by the time we get to Jesus, we're not surprised to see the Spirit active and working in the Messiah's life as well. The Spirit continues to be in control, continue to manifest the will of God and bring about the events that the Lord wants to happen. And yet there is something here that, in the text that, that, that marks off Jesus' interaction with the Spirit as unique. We saw this two weeks ago with the baptism of Jesus. It was there that Jesus' relationship with the, with the Spirit was visibly demonstrated as the, dove, the Spirit descended upon Jesus as a dove in bodily form. And it was there 
at his baptism that Jesus was anointed with the Spirit. Anointed with the Spirit. And that's important language. Because you see, throughout the Old Testament, the Spirit anointed others. He came upon God's people that the Spirit would then use to accomplish his purposes. Just a few examples. Samson, in Judges 14, read that the Spirit rushed upon Samson, and God used Samson for his purposes. We see that the Spirit came upon David in 1 Samuel 16. He's anointed by Samuel, and then the Spirit comes upon him, and he is now the Lord's anointed as the Spirit comes upon him. We see it also in Elisha as he asks for the spirit that, uh, that rested upon Elijah to also come upon him, and God grants that, and he's empowered for his prophetic ministry as well. And so the Spirit, throughout the Old Testament, came and resided and worked through God's people for the purposes that he had. But we, as we saw a couple weeks ago, that Isaiah identified the Messiah as having a special relationship. He was God's chosen servant. And the Spirit anointed him for that special task that the Messiah had. And so therefore, when Jesus was anointed with the Spirit at his baptism, he was equipped with power and authority to carry out his divine mission. He was now being equipped to go out and to do what God had placed him on earth to do. And this idea that at his baptism, when the Spirit came upon him, he was anointed with the Spirit, and the Spirit was then equipping him and empowering him to do his mission, to do his ministry, was understood by the apostles as well. I want you to see this. Turn to Acts chapter 10. The book of Acts chapter 10. This is in the midst of the account of the gospel coming to the Gentiles, in the house of Cornelius, Peter is speaking, recounting what took place in those days of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 10, verse 36, look, we can start in verse 34. It says, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation... Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Here we see, what I want you to draw your attention to, is the fact that Peter, a follower and apostle of, of Jesus Christ, saw that the, the coming of the Spirit upon Jesus was indeed his anointing. His anointing in such a way that the Holy Spirit then came upon him, and it says that God was with him. And that the Spirit then Verse 38, brought power and it equipped him to do the mighty and miraculous things that he did in his ministry. 
In other words, in Jesus' ministry as the Messiah, he did the healing and he did the miraculous things that he did through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because, again, as we saw, the Old Testament prophesied that he would be the Spirit-anointed Messiah. The Spirit would be upon him for these things. And as we'll see in a couple weeks, Jesus recognizes this very reality for himself. We're going to look further in the chapter 4 where Jesus is in the, the synagogue at Nazareth and he's going to open up the scriptures and read from Isaiah 66 and say the Spirit has come upon him to do these things. He recognizes the Spirit has equipped him to do this. And so it was from this moment at his baptism of being filled with the Spirit that Jesus began preaching with authority, healing those who were oppressed by demons, and calling sinners to repentance. But before he launches into that ministry, he's led into the wilderness by the Spirit. Back in Luke chapter 4, it says that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Being full of the Spirit, he was controlled by the Spirit. In, and in that control, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The wilderness we discussed a little bit with John the Baptist, but it was essentially this uh, area of Judah, of Judea rather, where there was just a rocky wasteland. And those of you who went to Israel recently, you know what I'm talking about. There are just rocks everywhere, there's no signs of life. Deep ravines. It lies to the west of the Dead Sea, east of the hill country of Judea, east of Jerusalem. And it was seen as a place of wild beasts, as even Mark notes in Mark chapter 1, verse 13. And it was thus generally avoided. There was no reason to go to the wilderness unless you had to cut through it, unless a, a route of travel was going through it to get you someplace else. But otherwise, they wouldn't go to the wilderness. As we noted, John the Baptist was in the wilderness preparing for his ministry. Jesus now goes to the wilderness to prepare for ministry, but he doesn't go there to uh, simply escape things. He goes there to encounter. He goes there for rigorous testing. But we must note the language of verse 1, that he didn't go to the wilderness by accident. He didn't go there even by his own choice. Jesus was led there by the Spirit. In fact, Mark chapter 1, in his account, uses a term uh, that, that says to, that, that the Spirit drove him out, or the Spirit cast him out into the wilderness, describing that initiative by the Spirit, and, and in one sense, even the violent nature by which he's, he's pushing them, Jesus out into the wilderness. Luke and Matthew rather use the, the passive term of was led into the wilderness. Both are true. While Mark is emphasizing the Spirit's initiative and action, Luke and Mark rather speak in such a way that show that Jesus is still in control. Jesus is still making decisions, but he's, he's, he's submitted his will to the Spirit. He's being led. He's being yielded to the Spirit. And so it's here that we see Jesus in complete submission to his Father's will as mediated through the Holy Spirit. The author Gerald Hawthorne in his study on the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus says this. He says, He being Jesus chooses to submit the will of God to the will of God made known to him through the Spirit 
for his own will. In this very act, he continues to win the battle of obedience over disobedience, of choosing the Father's way over his own way. Not my will, but yours be done, was a hallmark of Jesus' life and ministry. Jesus says those words, not my will, but yours be done, later when he's about to encounter the cross. But as we can see, even here, he is submitted to his Father's will. We even saw that right when he was 12 years old and he was in the temple and he was left behind by his parents and he says, I must be about the things of my father. I must be doing the things that my father wants me to do. He carried with him this sense he was obligated and happily so to do the ministry of his father. And so it's here, folks, in the life of our Lord that we are given a portrait of what submission to God and his spirit looks like. We as followers of Jesus who have been born again by the Spirit are called to walk by the Spirit. Galatians 5 verse 16. In other words, we're not made alive by the Spirit and then we leave the Spirit behind. No, we are carried along. We continue our Christian lives in the Spirit. We're to daily walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh is the contrast he makes in Galatians 5. And we know in Ephesians Ephesians 5 verse 18, Paul exhorts us to be filled with the Spirit, going on to describe what a life filled with the Spirit looks like, and that is one who is obedient to the Lord in all of our relationships and in the church. We cannot miss the similarities between our calling as Christians and Jesus' life as described in the Gospels. There's filling of the Spirit, there's being led by the Spirit, there's walking by the Spirit. Jesus modeled for us what this walking by the Spirit looks like. He lived and ministered in the power of the Spirit. He was a man who was dependent on the Spirit for the spiritual power needed to accomplish his mission and to obey his Father. Now, he is the divine Son of God, both then and now and from eternity past to eternity future. He never lacked any divinity But by taking on human flesh, he laid aside the independent use of his divine attributes and instead chose to walk by the Spirit while he was here in the flesh. And so this means that in Jesus, we have an example to whom we can look. We have the same spiritual resources available to us as were available to Jesus. We have the Word of God to meditate upon. We have prayer to talk with the Father. And we have the Spirit of God residing within us by which we can walk in this life and live obediently. And so as we see here Jesus being full of the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, we need to marvel yet again at the humility of the Son of God. He is the creator of all. His majesty is unmatched. And yet he he comes to earth and takes on limitations to be dependent on, Upon the Spirit, the third person, the second person of the Trinity being dependent upon the third person of the Trinity. And in this, we see that he is uniquely qualified to undergo the ultimate testing. Because he's not just a human with the Spirit. He is God in human flesh anointed with the Spirit. And he will be able to parry every blow given by the devil. 
and he will emerge victorious as the one who will defeat the ultimate foe. Where every other son of Adam has failed, he will emerge victorious. So, first here in this text, we see Jesus, the dynamic of Jesus and the Spirit. Let's look next at Jesus and the devil. Jesus and the devil, setting the stage still some more. Look in verse 2. He's in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. Now, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, where he was tempted by the devil. Mark identifies the tempter here as Satan. Matthew and Luke say simply the devil. Diabolos. Now these two names, devil and Satan, are essentially mean the same thing. They mean an enemy or an adversary. The one who you are against. And they refer to the chief supernatural evil being. And this evil being, Satan, has been the adversary of God since the beginning. And make no mistake, he's real. There are some that would say that the devil or Satan is just a figment of people's imagination. But the Bible makes very clear that this is a real being who can inflict real spiritual harm. Now sometime in the early days of creation, Satan along with all the other angels, was created. We don't know precisely, but it has to be within that time. And yet, being a former angel, he rebelled against God and was cast out of heaven. And he appears in Genesis chapter 3, just the third chapter of the Bible, as the serpent who tempts God's representatives, Adam and Eve, seeking to allure them to join him in his rebellion against Almighty God. And he succeeds in that temptation. And as a result of his success, the Lord promises that there will be enmity between him and his representatives and God and God's representatives. And this really has been the cosmic war ever since. This enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman as documented throughout the scriptures and throughout all of time. Satan has been on a mission to oppose the kingdom of God ever since the beginning. Now, as it relates to our text before us, we need to realize that the devil is not the one in charge. The devil is not the one in charge here. Jesus is led by the Spirit to the place where the Spirit wants him to go. In other words, Satan was given an, an instruction, an RSVP from, from God saying, hey, I want you at this place at this time, and Satan shows up according to the command of God. We don't know if Satan ever tempted Jesus when he was a boy, when he, uh, before this time, was there any sort of battling that took place? The text seems to indicate that this is the time that the showdown took place. Satan was not given permission to attack, to tempt the Son of God yet. There was more, still more learning that 
Jesus had to do, still more obedience he had to grow in. And yet here, God sends Satan to tempt Jesus. So Satan here functions, get this, as God's servant. Satan is God's servant, accomplishing God's purpose. And this is the unified testimony of Scripture. God is the sovereign one. Satan is the servant of God. If he wants to do anything, he must ask permission from God. You see, the forces of good and evil in the Bible are not presented as if it were a yin and yang, or that, that good and evil were equal and they're duking it out, as popular, popularly portrayed in, say, a story like Star Wars, where, where just good and bad are both equal and you're hoping the good wins. The Bible doesn't present the cosmic battle of good and evil that way. God is sovereign. And there's no question that he's the stronger one. The triune God is ruler over all, and Satan is the usurper, the one who's trying to infiltrate and attack. He's on a mutinous mission to overthrow the one who created him. And we don't see that just here in this text, but you can just think down through the pages of Scripture. Most visibly, maybe the chapters of Job, right, where they're Satan goes and asks permission of God if he can go and afflict Job. And God says, yes, you may go, but only do this to go no further. And Satan can only operate within the bounds that God gives him. Later on in Luke chapter 22, Jesus reveals to Simon Peter that Satan had asked to have Simon for himself. And Jesus prayed for him. And the implication is Simon, or Satan could not just take Simon Peter if he wanted him. He had to ask permission because Satan's not sovereign. And Christian, this should give you great comfort. The evil forces that are out there are not running rampant, that they are not outside of God's control. Yes, Satan and his demons are able to do great evil, he prowls around as a roaring lion, seeking someone whom he may devour, but he is the servant of the living God. And even as he thinks he's planning wicked schemes against you, we know that God sovereignly uses those and directs those for our good because all things work together for good for those who love God. What Satan means for evil, God means for good. Praise the Lord, right? Now, we must resist the devil. We need not fear him, just as Jesus did. Now, we have, uh, as I said, we have no indication that Jesus and the devil ever met before this time, and yet here they meet with no introductions needed. Satan knows who the Messiah is. If there was any, ever, any doubt, now that God has spoken from heaven, the Spirit's descended, he's, Jesus is a marked man. And Satan is going to unleash all of his forces against the work of Jesus. And Jesus, knowing his Old Testament, reading his Bible, meditating upon it, knows who this arch enemy of God is and is prepared for him. I just have to, as we think about Jesus and Satan, we just have to pull back and realize Jesus is the almighty God, right? He's the creator. That means he created Satan. 
which means he is here now all taking on the limitations of humanity, and now he's, he's going to be tempted and tested and pushed and attacked from this one whom he created. And he, Jesus has every right to be able to look Satan in the face and say, how dare you? Who do you think you are? And yet Jesus doesn't do that. He humbly takes the temptation, humbly receives the testing. Why does he do this? It's because in his humility of the incarnation, he came to walk our path. He came to have a full life and experience as a human, including temptation. He was, as the author of Hebrews says, Hebrews 4.15, he was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus had to walk our path. He had to walk your path, which means he had to walk the path of temptation and succeed. And so we must look here as we see Jesus parrying and fighting with Satan. We must see our humble, condescending Savior that he underwent this temptation for us. But finally, having looked at Jesus' relationship with the Spirit, his relationship with the devil, let's look finally at Jesus and temptation. Jesus and temptation. Now the purpose of Jesus being led by the Spirit into the wilderness was so that he might be tempted or tested. The word translated tempted here, tempted by the devil, in verse 2, can be translated either to tempt or to test. And context tells us how it should be translated. Obviously, by being accompanied by the phrase, by the devil, we translate it as tempted. But I believe that the idea of being tested by God is also implied in the narrative. Remember, the Holy Spirit is the one who made this confrontation take place. He led Jesus to that wilderness spot. Therefore, this is something God wanted to happen. We also see that Jesus being brought out into the wilderness and fasting for 40 days. Notice that it says he ate nothing during those days. And when he, those days were ended, he was hungry. As has been said, the greatest understatement in all of Scripture, right? He's hungry after 40 days of no eating. But as, as readers of our Bibles, this should cause so many flashbacks for us of things that have already taken place in the scriptures. The number 40, the wilderness, fasting. All these things should, should, should remind us of things that have taken place before. We're reminded probably most uh, predominantly of Israel, who were in the wilderness not 40 days, but 40 years, being tested by God, as Deuteronomy 8, verse 2 says. Israel was identified in Exodus chapter 4, 21 and 22, as God's firstborn son. Israel, God's son, 40 years, testing in the wilderness, and they failed. Now, Jesus, God's perfect, beloved son, 40 days in the desert, in the wilderness, and will succeed. But this also 
This also reminds us, this tempting by the devil causes us to think back to Genesis and the tempting, the first tempting by the devil. When Satan tempted God's representatives, Adam and Eve, and they failed. But here, the second Adam is tempted by the same devil and Jesus emerges victorious. There are other experiences in the Old Testament, such as Moses, 40 days on Mount Sinai fasting. Elijah spent 40 days traveling to Mount Sinai through the desert. And in some ways, it even mirrors Abraham, who was tested by God to sacrifice his only son. And you see, when God tests his people, he he does this by placing them in difficult circumstances so that their true character might shine forth. And in this case, he wanted to show the true character of his divine beloved son by putting him up, up against the greatest adversary ever to show that this son was special. Now there's some debate whether Jesus was tempted for 40 days or whether he was just in the wilderness for 40 days and was tempted near the end of it. The text can allow either way. I tend to think that it was near the end of the 40 days that Jesus was tempted. It was when he was most weak, he was most vulnerable, that the devil came in to strike an attack. We don't know if the, the three temptations listed here are the only ones given or if there were more. But the point is that Satan brought out his best. Now, as we think about the temptation of Jesus, it's caused Christians to scratch their heads a little bit in confusion because we're dealing with the God-man. We're dealing with the one who is truly God and truly human. And there's, there's been some questions like, was Jesus really tempted? Were, were the offers made to him actually attractive to Jesus? Or is he going, yeah, I don't really even care about that. Or, and if they were attractive, does that mean that, that Jesus could have sinned if he had given in to them? And if he could not have sinned, then how could his temptations be real or authentic? You know, if he could never have stumbled, never have fell, and never have sinned, then is it really temptation? And Christians have spent years through the centuries trying to answer that, those questions. But all are clear we must state emphatically that Jesus never did sin. The Bible is very clear that Jesus never committed any sin while he walked upon this earth, and that must be stated emphatically. He never once broke the law in word, thought, or deed. And all agree that the divine nature that Jesus possessed was really incapable of sinning because the divine nature cannot, is holy and cannot look upon sin and therefore cannot be tainted with sin in any sort of way. James chapter 1 says that God can't even be tempted with evil. But Jesus has human nature. He's got weakness like Adam did. But again, this debate is about whether Jesus could have sinned and whether the temptations were genuine. And without pulling us all into a miry, miry pit of theological discussion that could keep us here for hours... Um, I'm simply going to suggest a solution that's put forward by the theologian Bruce Ware in his book, The Man, Christ Jesus. Many of you uh, have read that and are familiar with it. If you haven't, I suggest it to you. It's in our theological library if you'd like to check it out. He helpfully reframes the discussion by saying that the reason Jesus could not sin 
is not the same reason that he did not sin. The reason Jesus could not sin is not the same reason he did not sin. The reason Jesus did not sin was that he was God. He had a divine nature. And because he had that divine nature, wedded with the human nature, he could not sin because that divine nature could not be dragged into sin. Some have tried to create a solution where they said if Jesus, Jesus could have sinned, but when, if he would have, then at that moment the divine nature would have left Jesus. And that's, I don't believe, an acceptable theological position because the divine and human nature were indissolubly joined together in Jesus. He was the God-man. He wasn't just two parts put together in which you could rip him apart again. So the reason Jesus did not sin was because he was the God-man. He was truly God in every sense of the word. But his divine nature was not the reason he did not sin. In other words, the reason Jesus went moment by moment, minute by minute, year by year through his life up until the final minute, and the reason he never sinned all the way through there was not because he pulled out his God card and said, I can just be God and I don't have to sin. Again, that was the reason he, didn't, he could not sin. But we believe the text illustrates that the reason he did not sin was because of his dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And we've already been talking about this this morning. So it plays right into this. He was a human who was anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit, and it was by relying on the Spirit that Jesus resisted temptation and never sinned. Listen how Bruce Ware describes it. He says this. He says, Although Christ was fully God, and as fully God, he could not sin, he deliberately did not appeal, as it were, to his divine nature in fighting the temptations that came to him. As a human, he not only could be tempted, but was tempted in the greatest ways any human has been tempted in all of history. Yet for every temptation he faced, he fought and resisted fully and totally apart from any use of or appeal to his intrinsic divine nature. Now, I know for me, a few years ago, this was a new concept. Because it's our typical reasoning that says if, if he could not sin because he was God, that means he did not sin because he was God. But if we look at the gospel narratives, we cannot miss the unmistakable reality that Jesus had help. Jesus relied. Jesus was dependent upon the Spirit. Uh, Hawthorne, another theologian I mentioned earlier, stated it this way. He, sa- he makes this claim. He says, It is impossible to escape the conclusion that these gospel writers want their readers to understand that Jesus met and conquered the usurping enemy of God, not by his own power alone, but aided in his victory by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had the help of the Holy Spirit to fight off these temptations. This is why here at the beginning of this temptation narrative, we have this emphasis on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was with him. And as we read in Acts chapter 10, that God was with him to empower him to do good and to cast out demons and all the rest. It's the Spirit that helped him. Now, to help us understand this concept, maybe you... You've been lost between the could not sin and, and did not sin. Let me, let me 
relate to you an illustration that Bruce Ware in his book relates about a swimmer that I, I found hugely helpful. So imagine a swimmer who wants to attempt breaking the world record for the longest continual swim, continuous swim, which apparently is around 70, over 70 miles. Now as this swimmer trains, besides his daily swims of 5 to 10 miles, he includes weekly swims of greater distance. On some of the longer swims of 30 and 40 miles, he notices that his muscles can begin to tighten and cramp a bit. And he becomes worried that in attempting to break the world record, his muscles may cramp severely and then he could drown. So he consults with friends and then they decide to arrange for a boat to follow along behind the swimmer 20 or 30 feet back, close enough to pick him up should there be any serious problem arise, but far enough away so as not to interfere with the attempted historic swim itself. On the appointed day, conditions were being just right, the swimmer dives in and begins his attempt at breaking the world record. As he swims, the boat follows comfortably behind, ready to pick him up if needed, but no help is needed. With determination and resolve, the swimmer relentlessly swims and swims and swims, and in due time, he succeeds in breaking the world record. Now consider two questions. Number one, why is it that this record-breaking ev- in this record-breaking event, the swimmer could not have drowned? Could not have drowned. The answer is that the boat was there all the while, ready to rescue him if needed. But number two, why is it that the swimmer did not drown? Why is it they could stand on that opposite shore and say, I didn't drown? The answer is that he kept swimming. That's why he didn't drown. Now, notice that the second question had nothing to do with the boat. Why did he not drown? Was not, had nothing to do with the boat. It had everything to do with the, the effort going in by the, put in by the swimmer. And in the same way, the reason Jesus could not sin was that he was God, the boat. But the reason Jesus did not sin is that he resisted temptation and the power of the Spirit. He did it all to the very end and accomplished it. And in this way, Jesus, once again, proves to be our perfect example. The one who depends upon the Spirit and succeeds in overcoming temptation. He came and took on the limitations of humanity and lived as we live in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. But in this, as he depends upon the Spirit to accomplish that victory, none of that diminishes his divinity. He is still very God of very God, as the Nicene Creed states it. And so we need to marvel at the Son of God who took on these limitations, who willingly submitted himself to be dependent upon the Spirit. And as he lived dependently, as he lived humbly, so we must as well. We have no strength of our own. We can have no spiritual victory in our own resources. Friends, we cannot live this Christian life. We cannot battle temptation in our own strength. We, apart from Christ, are spiritually bankrupt. We are spiritually bankrupt. And even when we are born again and we are given eternal life and we're saved, we still have no personal resources that we bring to the table. 
By which you say, oh, wow, actually, I can, I can fight this in some extra thing that I have. No, God wants us from the moment of salvation all the way through until we're called home to fight, to battle, to, to be sanctified, to seek to grow in holiness in the power of God's Spirit so that we are depending upon and relying upon His strength. Why? So that He gets the glory. If He does the fighting, He gets the glory. If we contribute something in our fight over sin, then we can kind of think ourselves something special, that we at least added something to that. But no, friends, if you see any spiritual progress in your life, that is all of grace. That is all of the Spirit. If you're able to say no to a sin now that you couldn't say no to before, that's not because you've gained something. It's because through God's grace, he's enabled you to rely upon his Spirit's power. He receives the glory. And the Spirit receives the glory through Jesus' life as well. And this is the gospel. We've been talking about Jesus' example, following him. We cannot follow Jesus' example in our own strength. We must admit our utter bankruptcy. We must deny ourselves, as Jesus said. You see, to attempt to follow Jesus in our own strength is not Christianity, and it's not the gospel. It's a damning gospel, because it's a gospel of self-righteousness that says you have the resources in order to follow Jesus on your own. And that is not truth, and that is not liberating. We need the true gospel that tells us we have nothing, and we come to, come to the Lord only in his strength and allow him to work through us. We weren't born again apart in our own strength, but apart from the Spirit of God, we will not be sanctified other than God's Spirit. And so I encourage you, don't leave this morning without knowing whether you are truly walking in the Spirit, whether you're believing the true gospel, or whether you're on this other path of trying to live the moral life, trying to follow Jesus in your own strength, because that path leads to destruction. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we praise you, triune God, as we see, Father, your plan enacted as your son goes out into the wilderness, empowered by your spirit. And you, the triune God, will work a tremendous victory over the great enemy. And we know this really is just a foreshadowing of what Jesus would one day accomplish on the cross as he would ultimately defeat Satan. Father, I ask that you would help us to live our lives, not in our own strength, not seeking to receive any glory of ourselves, but to admit our despair and our bankruptcy apart from Christ, relying upon the Spirit so that you might receive all the glory and praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this concludes our service this morning, and as we did Last week, uh, here, those of you here on campus, we will be dismissing row by row, starting in the back. So I encourage you uh, to please uh, mask up as you prepare to go fellowship on the patio and wait for the ushers to dismiss you. Thank you.